Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese American perspective. Here we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S. Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Politicus, the uh, main podcast of Palcus. My name is Angela Samoth, and I'm here with my most esteemed, most awesome co-host, Denise Borges. How are you, Denise? I am doing great, and it's an honor to be here with Mrs. Simões, uh, Costa Simões, who, you know, some people have like Miss Algarve or Miss Azores or Miss Portugal. She's Mrs. Galaxy, so... <laughs> it's a treat to be with her on every single podcast. I had to think about that one, Angela. Yeah, I know. Right? You got to get more creative these days, Tanish. Come on. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for joining us for another episode. Today, our guest is District Attorney Ron Freitas, who is District, District Attorney for the uh, San Joaquin County here in California. Welcome, District Good Attorney Freitas. Good morning. Good morning. Can we call, Welcome. Can we, can nice we call you Ron? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, good. So, so Ron, thank you so much for joining us. You're uh, in reading your background. It was uh, quite fascinating how much you have been involved in not only as a career prosecutor, but in gang-related issues, helping schools, and that sort of thing. And so, looking forward to digging into this conversation. But first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, a little bit about your Portuguese roots, and how you started down this path? Sure. First off, thank you very much for having me here today. I grew up in uh, the Central Valley. Uh, three of my four grandparents were uh, Portuguese. So uh, they spoke quite a bit and uh, my parents understood it. And I got a couple words that we probably shouldn't share on the podcast and phrases out of that. But from there, I went down to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, uh, got my undergraduate, undergraduate degree and came back to University of Pacific uh, Law School in Sacramento. And Ron, okay. a quick question about that Portuguese, um, you know, three out of four of your grandparents being from a Portuguese background. How much do you think that that played uh, in um, who you are today? And of course, the influence from your parents and your grandparents and your ties to the, the Portuguese American community. You're from an area, Central Valley, that has a strong community. It's probably now the strongest, but even a few years ago was always a, a booming area with lots of traditions. How much did that background play in um, who you are as a person? You know, it really meant quite a bit to me. Obviously, very hardworking individuals. I think we were always helping uh, either on the dairy or in the businesses for a long period of time. But there was also a very strong emphasis on education. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why, but the nuns had me convinced, I think, in second grade that I was going to college, which may not seem like a big deal now. But if you realize, my mom was the first person to ever even graduate college in our entire family. And I was only the second. I was going to be the second. So that was a lot of pressure. My grandfather and my grandmother both left to work in the family business. Uh, my grandfather left in third grade. Uh, to work on the dairy, never to return. And uh, my grandmother left uh, to work in the bakery in her teens. So uh, because they didn't have that chance to graduate and have that education, they uh, made sure that I was going to graduate and they put that premium on there. 
And so with that, uh, you know, emphasis on education, the emphasis, of course, on on family and and the nuns, uh, they they have a way to influence you. Don't do that. One one quick question, which is what uh, how did you take the path and what was the path to law? Or did you always know from the second grade that you're going to be a lawyer? I mean, every every second or third grade is going to be a lawyer or doctor. We know that. But when did you really think that you were going into law? That was the field for you or had it been something since you were young or is it a different pathway that you took? You're right. I think every second grader thinks that they're going to be a doctor and a lawyer. But then as you get further down the path, it seems harder and harder and less realistic. But I kept coming back to one of my aunts that was very, very supportive of me and that she said that I was very good at talking back and that I should always be a lawyer. And she told me this at a very young age. So after graduating Cal Poly, I was looking at options. I took a year off from school and applied to law schools and uh, made it happen. And I was very excited and very fortunate I did. And, you know, people think that if you're the district attorney, you must have grew up in a law office. Uh, It was quite a leap of faith. I uh, literally stepped foot on a law school before I had ever been even in a law office. So I kind of knew what a lawyer did and I knew what I was getting myself into, but uh, literally had no idea. Indeed. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's one thing to be in law school. It's another thing to be, of course, in, uh, in the real world. And from law school, what, uh, you know, even folks who go to law school, Many take different pathways. You know, law school, as you know better than I do, sometimes a pathway into politics, which in this case, uh, being a district attorney is somewhat of a political process. But it's some, uh, it's a way to get into politics, whether it be at elected office or appointed, and sometimes for other reasons, of course, private uh, and public. What enticed you into prosecution? I think uh, it came back to maybe my Portuguese common sense that uh, even though you were a lawyer, there were also unemployed lawyers at at the time. And my mentors really pointed me towards uh, litigation, uh, that individuals who uh, had experience in the courtroom could do well in the courtroom, would always have an option. And the way to do that was to go to the district attorney's office and get courtroom experience. So I I had graduated business. I was headed towards business litigation, did an internship at the SAC District Attorney's Office, and while there, uh, fell in love with the profession and was ultimately hired by San Joaquin County as one of their deputy district attorneys. And from there, of course, then to becoming district attorney for the county, tell us a little bit about that process. And and, uh, it is an elected position, if I'm not mistaken. It is. Uh, And I think what I fell in love was the opportunity to really make a difference in your community. I don't know if people listening to this are aware, but San Joaquin County has always had a lot of challenges, probably very high violence, and is really disappointing because it's a wonderful county that has a lot of potential. And we see that businesses have chosen to go other places uh, because they're afraid of the violence. So I felt that as a deputy district attorney and addressing the violence, I could make quite a bit of difference in uh, my community. 
And so for people uh, that listen to, of course, to Politicus uh, from Palkus all over the, the U.S. And, and beyond, but as you said, many people are probably not uh, familiar as we are here in California and in the Valley, particularly with San Joaquin. Tell us a little bit, what are the major towns and major areas in San Joaquin in your in uh, your county, please? As the county seat is Stockton. Uh, that's over 300,000 individuals. We're about 800,000 individuals for the entire county. We have surrounding communities. Our South County is closer to the Bay Area and has many commuter towns and now self-sufficient towns, which include Tracy, Mountain House, Ripon, Escalon, and uh, Manteca. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have a, a large farming community, a wine community, which most of the uh, probably individuals are familiar with Zinfandel wines, are familiar with Lodi and that region also. So we have one of the unique things about San Joaquin County is that we have a deep water port. So we have large tanker ships, about 300 a year, that come into our port and haul everything all over the world uh, through the uh, Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate. And so Stockton being the major city, uh, what, uh, and as you said, you know, over 300,000, it has been a city that's grown immensely. What are some of the dilemmas in Stockton? Stockton's in the news a lot of, fortunately or unfortunately, sometimes good, sometimes not so good, like all cities, of course, throughout the world. Yeah. But tell us a little bit about some of the some of the issues that you face with crime and uh, issues that, that, that the citizens, of course, face in your in your the whole county, but especially in the city of Stockton that has been, as I said, in the news for us here in California. Everybody's heard of the city. So part of the challenges that we have is what's always made Stockton attractive for over 150 years is its central location in California. This has been very good for commerce, uh, for the transportation of ag products, but uh, we've also seen it as uh, one of the things that makes it tra uh, attractive to narcotics trafficking, so that we see that drugs come up California from the south, they come to Stockton and can be distributed all across the United States, proceeding north all the way to Canada or east all the way to uh, New York uh, and the East Coast. So uh, we have that uh, as one of our challenges. We have um, a pretty substantial gang population that has been multi-generational, uh, which uh, has been um, exceptionally violent. I think earlier, uh, this month, we had a police officer that was shot, shot at uh, while on patrol, attempting to intervene in a carjacking by some of our uh, gang members. So that has been quite a challenge. And then uh, I, I think historically, we've had challenges with uh, education and employment, but we've made great progress, I, I think, in the last 10 years on both of those. Fantastic. That's great to hear that uh, there has been, of course, uh, good progress, uh, because that's exactly what uh, what one needs is uh, for things to uh, to uh, to get better. And as district attorney and, of course, with your team and all of the folks who work with you, you mentioned a little bit about uh, with drugs and the distribution and with that, of course, violence and gangs. Uh, Stockton has been in the news because of that, too, such as the uh, area I live in, Fresno. Uh, area as well. What are some of the uh, deals? Uh, what are some of the challenges that, and some of the programs that I know that you've been involved in to try to, to face this issue and to try to give more opportunities for our young people besides belonging to a gang? Well, 
The district attorney in San Joaquin County, I feel very fortunate that I am the CEO of the largest law office in San Joaquin County. That means I have just shy of 100 attorneys and about 200 support staff, including about 50 police officers and about 30 victim witness advocates that are working nonstop to provide justice to our community. So uh, we work in many different ways uh, from uh, intervention strategies to uh, court proceedings. Uh, we file about 20,000 court proceedings a year. And of those, it seems to be between 40 and 60 will be uh, murder cases uh, involving violence. Uh, we work on a three-step strategy. My experience also as a deputy district attorney, I spent 10 years on the Lodi School Board. And uh, it's very important, I think, one, that we educate individuals. Two, that we provide early intervention strategies so that we uh, then will have employment opportunities. And last, so that our last option will actually be enforcement and incarceration. So that uh, by providing education, early intervention, and employment, uh, uh, we believe that the uh, enforcement in takes care of itself. Indeed, and sometimes when we look at uh, district attorneys and we look at, uh, you know, we look at that part that you just said, which is the court interventions, we look at uh, going through, of course, the, ju the judicial system and prosecuting. But there is that role that you mentioned, and it's wonderful that you've had this experience as a, a board of trustee of, an, of a school district. There is this important role, and we see more and more of these pacts between the DA's office in various uh, small and, and large counties and mid-sized counties and education, because uh, how important to you is that early intervention? Well, my experience was personal also, uh, Denise. One, I saw how changing education could be in an individual's life. That's truly the X factor that people, once they become, graduate high school, once they graduate college, uh, they really change uh, their projections. And I was a personal, my experience was no doubt about it. Also, my experience in the district attorney's office for about 15 years was very heavily involved in uh, homicide and gangs. Uh, I was the head of the gang unit. I was the division chief of the homicide and gang unit. So I was working on very horrible cases uh, that very tragic things had happened to individuals. And at the end of those cases, what I saw uh, was that we'd get a probation report and individuals that were 17, 18, 19, 20 years old uh, were be sent away for hundreds of years for you know very horrible things that they did, people that they killed. And we looked at these reports and I saw one factor over and over again, and that was that individuals never had graduated high school. Uh, so uh, when this opportunity came to take on this position with the Lodi Unified School Board, which I was much too busy to do, my wife talked me into doing it. And she says, because, you know, you can make a change in people's lives. If you get them graduated, then we can keep them out of the criminal justice system. And I firmly believe that. Now, the school system taught me one thing more is that you just don't try to get someone graduated when they get to high school. You actually go all the way back and get them reading by third grade. 
by getting them right, reading by third grade, there was a 98% correlation that they would graduate high school. So, uh, and we created a whole bunch of different options to make sure that individuals were reading by third grade and they graduated high school. So I have a couple of questions. I think that it makes perfect sense that, you know, not finishing high school or not having completed certain levels of schooling is a big factor in, in whether or not somebody gets sucked into uh, gang activity. Now, I mean, there have been some, I don't want to say issues, but like if you look at the Portuguese community, you know, there are some generations where, like you said, with your grandparents, right, that stopped going to school at, at third grade or stopped in her teens to go work at the bakery. And I think things like that did continue for uh, a few decades after, maybe not so much today, um, because I think it'd be against the law to make a third grader quit school to go to work. But you still had people not finishing school, right? Um, I think my my grandmother actually didn't finish high school. So why do you think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I can't remember hearing stories, and I certainly don't know anybody, of, of Portuguese people that were heavily involved in gangs. Do you, based on just your experience, and you know, I don't know that there's really any data out there, but even if the Portuguese hadn't finished schooling, right, high school or, or what have not, what prevented them from getting wrapped into kind of the gang culture? Was it their grandmothers that, you know, or their mothers that just kept really close tabs on them? Or I'm just curious because, you know, the schooling factor, I'm sure there's other factors as well, but that's just one question that came to mind as you were talking. Probably just a different time because mm -hmm. they were going and they were working uh, and the child labor laws uh, weren't being enforced, I think, in those circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 80 years ago, I don't know if they had time to get into trouble, but mm. I think individuals leaving school now are leaving school not to go work in the family business, but are leaving because it's it's not a good fit for them. So what we tried to do, and I think that was the other part of your question, was to have different options that we found you know, AP classes are fantastic, and those are take our top third of our individuals. Those individuals are self-motivated, but our middle third students and our bottom third students were probably going to spend 95% of their lives in the same 20 miles. Our AP students, not so much. I mean, if you're a nuclear physicist, you're probably not going to return to Stockton or San Joaquin County, or if you're a brain surgeon. Uh, we love giving those children the, those opportunities and those chances to go do amazing things. But uh, we also want to concentrate on our middle and bottom third. So we had uh, special ed reading programs to make sure pe people are up to speed. We had uh, paraeducators uh, working with individuals, getting them caught up. Our middle classes, we had what we used to call career, uh, is now career technical education. But we would have, uh, we used to call it ROP, and it was called uh, VOED. You know, we have those opportunities so that individuals would find a, a way. Uh, we also uh, worked at the school district with a middle college where individuals would go to Delta, our junior college in Stockton, and simultaneously with getting their high school diploma, we'd get an AA degree. Now, think about that. Not only does that take away two years of school, but it also takes away two years of the cost of school, which you know projected out is anywhere from what forty to one hundred thousand dollars. 
So now you've opened a four-year degree up to another individual. So uh, I think by having a whole bunch of different opportunities, I think we all are where we are because we had certain mentors. Maybe it was my aunt that you know told me I should become a lawyer or what. But if we can provide these opportunities to our kids to get them graduated and be, have them become productive members of our community, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. So then the second question I had is, you know, as you're talking about the gang activity, I certainly remember in the 80s growing up and you on the news, there was always uh, reports about gang activity. And I feel like back then it seemed, you know, the kind of very stereotypical, you you know, you could, you could identify gang members by the colors they were wearing or maybe the, the how they dressed or things like that. And you just avoided certain areas. How has that changed today, right? Are you seeing it more spread out? Um, and what about, I can't imagine, or I can imagine that, you know, social media has uh, had an impact on maybe the spread of gang activity. I don't know, but I'm comparing it to the 80s to now, like, what are some of the differences that you see? Uh, in many ways, it has changed social media. Uh, most of our gangs and gang members do have a social media presence that can be found. But in many ways, it has stayed the same. It's generally uh, individuals still identifying with colors. Uh, sometimes we see the second and third generation of the uh, gang members that we've been prosecuting before. So for lack of a better phrase, there'd be a gangster factory that are creating our future gangsters and also uh, wow. high recruitment. Uh, for individuals that become disenfranchised uh, with uh, traditional education and traditional pathways. Uh, gangs are a very big recruiting. Circling back to that social media is a pretty big recruiting tool. I can imagine. So moving forward, uh, you've, you know, we've talked about some of these programs that well, sound like amazing programs. Has there been can you talk about a few success stories or uh, any particular program that seems to work best? Yes, uh, we work uh, with our juvenile division. We have an amazing program in Lathrop, which is just about in the center of our county, and that's Discovery Challenge Academy. This is a program put on by the National Guard. It's truly one of our magic bullets that turns kids' lives around. Uh, they take 150 kids twice a year. They live on the Army base in barracks, and they get discipline, 65 units of credit catch-up, and uh, a new perspective and determination to graduate and do amazing things. Uh, they've turned things around. Their success rate uh, stays in the high 85%. That's just not the number of kids that graduate but they measure success on kids that one year later are either employed in school or in the military. And it's absolutely one of our magic bullets in the world. They take kids with 0.0 GPAs and turn them into 4.0s. And it's uh, just a fantastic program there. Wow, it's amazing what a little structure can do. <laughs> structure, uh, they, they also partner with the County Office of Education. So they took it one step farther these challenge academies, there's about 50, I think, in the nation, three in California. Our county office of education also will certify them that if they get enough units, they'll get their high school diploma while they're there also. 
It also opens a lot of doors for employment. So uh, these individuals can go work at our Sharp Army Depot. They, uh, if they're 18, they start at $40 an hour. There's also vocational and other training that's available as a graduate uh, from uh, Discovery Challenge. And that, that is a wonderful success rate and kudos to you and uh, your team and the county for uh, taking these challenges head on because uh, sometimes, you know, we want to just, you know, pass the ball down the road or kick the can down the road, as it said, and in English and Portuguese, we say it with the ball because we're all into soccer. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the idea that, uh, you know, these issues have to be faced on. And I just wanted to add a little bit to what Angela was saying about or the question you know about you know we don't find them in portuguese here in the valley we found them and i mean when i was a high school teacher for 22 years and i could name a few that were portuguese i think we don't have any big numbers because we represent way less than one percent of the population of the state so um but we've had some issues with portuguese americans actually i have as a as a, also an educator been asked to uh a few times and I one time I did but not for the legal system I had and um, chose not to which is to um, interpret uh, not for these 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 kids because they spoke English obviously well but for their parents who were immigrants and who were having issues you know communicating with uh, because we're dealing with at this time these cases I was asked were dealing with minors and so um that brings me to to, to a question of there's, of course, these wonderful programs that you put together. They have to be through education and they have to be through economic opportunities, as you said. So as the county um, has more and more economic opportunities, especially, uh, I mean, there's pros and cons, but there's always those pros of having great economic opportunities with a port as the port of Stockton. Do you think as the, as, as you're uplifting also the the county uh, economically that that might also be one way to kind of uh, um, get a few of these individuals especially successful programs into a job that a job that pays well and then that people feel that they're a part of society well i think it's kind of interesting as you're asking me this question i don't know did you hear the sirens in the background did the microphones pick that up so <laughs> <laughs> that is actually unusual, but no, I, I think you're exactly right. For us to be attractive for businesses and to be attractive for communities, we had to raise our game. So I took office in January and we went back to the fundamentals that uh, we are now back prosecuting property crimes, we're prosecuting theft, we're prosecuting vandalism, we're prosecuting arson, we're prosecuting drug possession, we're prosecuting uh, prostitution and human trafficking, we're back to prosecuting uh, people who assault our police officers and resisting arrest. Our idea is not so much that we want to lock people up and throw away the key, but the idea is that we need to get individuals on positive paths. And we also have to create safe communities. As a district attorney, my responsibility is for the public safety as a chief law enforcement officer of the county. And uh, without those safe communities, we won't have businesses or communities that want to be here. And we find that our individuals that come to San Joaquin County are expecting a higher degree of public safety. And uh, I, I really see it blossoming. Uh, in addition to the port, we have an airport that takes the, the largest cargo and passenger planes, our central location, uh, our IT is booming, our warehouse is booming. 
uh, industry because of that uh, same central location that we talked about before. We have our ag tourism that we're talking about with our wineries. And, you know, quite honestly, I think we just have great people. So I really see this area uh, taking off and I'm really proud to be a part of this that uh, we can do our part to give uh, businesses and communities a very safe environment that they can uh, thrive and succeed in. Indeed, and that's uh, uh, a, a high goal, a high bar, but it's uh, what uh, everyone in public office should aspire to. I, I, I like to comment about the, the the microphones going silent. It's <laughs> at times we are, you know, just recently, just FYI for our uh, those who are listening to us, the Azores had um, a report come out not too long ago, and they've had them throughout a couple of years. And sometimes people think that you know because oh the Portuguese community and where we came from, uh, or our uh, descendants from, uh, you know whether we are parents, grandparents, or great grandparents, the Azores has the highest of any of many indexes that are not a good thing to have. For example, twenty seven percent of the kids and the Azores did not finish a twelfth grade education. Uh, still today, not uh, you know in, in my time when I immigrated uh, fifty years ago, but now. And um, highest domestic violence, uh, uh, horrific, not a gang issue, but a horrific uh, uh, issue related to drugs and drug consumption. One of the highest in all of Portugal, and Portugal is one of the highest also in some parts of uh, of Europe. So we have some issues that we brought to America, you know, and some issues that, uh, unfortunately, I think they're minor because of our uh, minor population. But um, I... I, in the high school, when I was teaching for 22 years there, I found quite a few st students who were in those fields that fortunately they were able to get out, maybe through some excellent programs like you've put forth in your county, um, uh, Ron, but uh, fortunately they were able to get out, but you know they were headed towards some not a very promising uh, future. And of course, in the East Coast, it's been uh, not a good thing as well. Well, I think we're almost out of time. I know that Angela probably has another question or so, but I wanted to thank you once again for this opportunity and um, wish you all the best. And also, uh, I will have one final question when it comes to uh, you're doing such a great job as a district attorney, although you've just taken, just as you said, um, started your mandate. But hopefully from district attorney, we will see you in the state government, right? Absolutely not. I'm here uh, for San Joaquin County. Uh, I promise my wife I will retire someday. Uh, but <laughs> it, <laughs> this is it. And, you know, that's um, interesting you were talking about the Azores and drugs. Fentanyl right now is our number one health concern. Uh, right. I think it's far surpassed COVID even uh, right now in our community for deaths. Uh, we're on pro uh, projected to have 100 uh, overdose deaths on fentanyl alone. Wow. Uh, this year in our county. So uh, we're very active in working to intervene in those lives. And uh, probably for every death, I would say our fire departments are probably responding to five or six or seven or even more uh, overdoses that could be deadly, but for Narcon. So we're working very big on a one pill can kill a strategy. And we're going to be going into our high schools uh, this year and following the models of Fresno, couple other DA's office to uh, try to educate kids that what you don't know what you're ordering on the internet, it's probably you think you're ordering something non-lethal, but it's more likely that it's fentanyl and, and it definitely can kill you. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned, Denise, the, the 
the issues happening in the Azores and that how some of that does exist here. Also that you experience some gang-related activity in the Portuguese community down in Tulare. You don't really hear about that, right? And I think that's part of our... Uh, we, we do a pretty culture. good job about putting that, you know, on the back burner. Well, I was <laughs> and, say and, the numbers, and the numbers aren't great. I mean, they're not, it's not like mm-hmm. I've experienced it, you know, in 22 years, you know, maybe half a dozen times. But it's just that they are there. I don't think that they're huge because then again, we represent less than three quarters of 1%, you know, there's... Sure. So sure, that's, sure. that's our issue. Yeah, but it's just, it, you know, it's part of our culture that we don't like to talk about the bad things, right? So we kind of, like you said, put it to the back burner, push it under the rug, and we just sort of pretend it doesn't exist. And I think we could probably have a whole other podcast discussion about some of the issues, not only, you know, drug use, but like, you know, domestic violence, uh, the machismo, addiction, those kinds of things. So maybe we'll we'll uh, have to have District Attorney Freitas back and have that conversation because I think that's a, a whole other hour of conversation. But so to wrap it up, I think there are quite a few young Portuguese Americans who have an interest in law enforcement and a, and a career in law enforcement. Where do you see the biggest need? Do you think they're, we, you know, they should consider going into to law? Should they become police officers? Or, you know, what other areas do you see as the biggest need where if somebody's considering a career in this industry, that would be a good place to start? That's a very good question. I think there's high vacancy in all the public services, from fire departments to police officers, probation. I know uh, we're always looking for good attorneys, good attorneys. So one of the things that we run uh, every year is a three-week youth leadership academies that we take kids uh, from high school ages and we expose them to different uh, career paths in the uh, criminal justice system. They uh, go to court, they do a trial, they hear uh, from domestic violence survivors. And we graduated 43 this year and uh, we like creating those type of opportunities. Um, And then, uh, you know, if we can plant the seed uh, that these individuals uh, will stay in public service and go on to be uh, uh, involved in the criminal justice system. Uh, we love having that. And one of the problems also is, is that the, the very high expense of law school, uh, when people are now taking on two hundred dollars and $300,000 of student loans and having to finance them for a large period of time, it makes it harder and harder for them to come into public service. Uh, they have to go into private practice to uh, satisfy these debts. But there are loan forgiveness strategies, probably not enough. We could always do more. But uh, there's also um, a lot of job satisfaction uh, in making a difference in your community. So uh, we're always looking uh, for great individuals. One quick question. I know that we're just about out of time. Ron, you mentioned something I think I'd love to have you elaborate on, which is exactly that part. You know, you said there's a lot of vacancies when it comes to police officers, uh, fire department, uh, probation, et cetera. In public service in general, we have that in the teaching industry, you know that well as uh, being on a school board. Why do you think is that happening? Why there's, is there, because uh, there used to be a time not too distant from now that uh, I still remember that it was kind of a, you know, a badge of honor to be, you know, in public service, even though we knew we made a little bit less money. What are your thoughts on that? You know, um, I think like the teacher industry and the shortages there, uh, I think it's still part of the uh, COVID hangover that we saw. 
that people uh, prefer to work from home and have those opportunities. Uh, but the public service jobs that we're talking about, police officer, probation officer, district attorney, trial attorney, uh, require individuals to show up and participate. Uh, we think that's a better career path and a, and a better idea. But uh, you know, competing with those work from home options, uh, that's pretty, uh, working from home is very attractive to a lot of individuals. And I can verify that because I work from home full time. <laughs> hard to and, be a police officer working from home, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. very hard to do a jury trial. A jury yeah. trial, yeah, right, be really, right. really. Um, But yes, I, I can see where the uh, the attractiveness of, of that would be. But you know, I, I think that there are some people who just naturally like to get out of the house and like to be active. They don't want to be sitting at a desk or sitting in front of a computer. So if if that's you, then this could be a great uh, opportunity or, or career path for you. So uh, something to consider. Without um, a doubt. And, and think of it really helps individuals with families. Uh, it works well for them. And, you know, speaking of the, you mentioned the cost of education, I would encourage everyone uh, on this who is listening that uh, to remember that there are scholarships out there specifically for young Portuguese Americans. Palcas has a comprehensive list of scholarships that exist throughout the country. And so if you go onto our website and look under education, uh, you can find a list there. And, uh, and, if, and if you can't find it, just send us a message and we'll send it to you. But uh, I mean, it's not going to pay $100,000 of you know, your entire uh, tuition. Uh, but it certainly will help. And so and we need more of those. We need more scholarships to help young Portuguese Americans specifically. But this has been a fascinating conversation. I don't think that we've really talked about crime and gang related activity before. And so I think it's an important topic because it does exist. It's all around us and we all need to be aware of what's happening. And so thank you for the work that you're doing, um, Ron, and your team and all of uh, San Joaquin County law enforcement. Um, it's a thankless often thankless job. And so we thank all of those individuals for their service. Oh, we are very grateful for this opportunity. We like making our community safer. Uh, we like defending our vulnerable and seeking justice for our victims. And anything we can do to break that playground to prison pipeline pays off a thousand percent in our community and really makes a difference. So thank you for uh, the time for me to share what I love doing. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who joined us for another episode of Politicus. We hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it and share it with family and friends so that they are more aware of what's happening in our community. They can join the conversation. If you have suggestions on topics or guests, please send us a note via email um, at palcus at palcus.org and that's p-a-l-c-u-s hit subscribe to the palcus podcast channel if you haven't already and please leave us a review on itunes uh, but you can also listen to this podcast on spotify soundcloud and pretty much anywhere that you listen to your podcasts and until then or until next time have a wonderful day everybody and be safe take care thank you for listening to politicus the official podcast of PALCUS, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. PALCUS is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community at large. To learn more about PALCUS and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palcus.org. 
To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palkus at palkus.org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by Palkus.